Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. We're now on episode 24. We're going to start off today by talking about the impact that the campaign is having across Europe. We've already had contact with a campaigner in Germany who's been working for a long time on rehabilitating the the witches of Germany. But we were contacted by somebody who has been influenced by what we're doing and started their own movement. Claire, could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, um, we've been contacted by a Catalan magazine called Sapiens and they have decided, having seen our campaign, to set up their own campaign to see whether or not they can have a national memorial for the women killed as witches in uh, Catalonia. Now, they have asked us if this weekend we can record Zoe. I'll have to put our lippy on because uh, they've asked us if we can record for them a message to explain the Witches of Scotland campaign, what we're doing so far, and what progress we've made. And they're going to send that out to their listeners there. And they too, I think, are having an event on International Women's Day, kicking off their campaign. So it's absolutely brilliant to see that some other country has taken up this idea where they haven't got a national monument either in doing this. So I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes. And it does mean, Zoe, we have somewhere to go abroad when the lockdown finishes. Oh. Could you imagine? It'll be so nice to once again travel. I can't wait. If only there was such a thing as travelling by broomstick. We could have got out a few ages ago. But no. Anyway, in the world of reality. We've we've also had people getting in touch with us on our social media, sending us photographs and other little snippets of information. Because sometimes when we're talking on the podcast, we think... Um, out loud, which is maybe not the most sensible thing to do. What does that mean? I wonder what that thing is. And one thing that I'd mentioned a while ago was this issue in Scotland about the witches or people that had been convicted of being a witch, being strangled and then burned, their bodies being burned. And I'd sort of mused about what what was the strangling? You know, how did they do that? It's such an intimate method of executing somebody. And we had a listener who got in touch with some evidence that she'd found in her research about describing it as being garroted. So to me, garroted is, is using a, like a length of rope or um, leather or something like that to put around somebody's neck and tighten it until they're strangled. So rather than the bare hands on the neck, it was a garrote, which I suppose is slightly less intimate, but still really up close and personal. I mean, you'd have to be, you could be behind them, I suppose, doing that, but it's just just adds just another layer of absolute horror to the situation that it, the way of killing them was so literally kind of hands-on, really, really terrible. So anyway, that was one of our listeners, uh, Melanie, who has also sent us lots of fantastic photographs of memorials that she's 
found as she's been traveling across the country in the past, not now, I'm not dobbing her in for breaking the rules. So that was really nice. And it's always really nice when people get in touch with us on um, Facebook and on Twitter and through Instagram. So please do keep that up because it's really good to know how much support there is across Scotland and indeed across the world for the campaign. This week, we remember women and men killed as witches. As this week has a legal slant, I thought I would research the strange phenomena of being found half guilty. In Scotland, we have three verdicts, which is highly unusual already. Most countries only have two, but we have three verdicts presently, guilty, not guilty and not proven. I had never, until I started researching people that had been convicted as witches, come across a verdict of half guilty. So that was completely new to me. And I wondered what what it was. Well, it seems that it's been accepted that a person has committed some sort of a crime, but in deciding that they've committed some sort of a crime or deciding that they may have committed the crime, but they weren't sure of it, they would find them half guilty. And finding them half guilty meant that they didn't have to impose the draconian penalty, which was in place if you were found a witch, i.e., being executed. So this seems like a bit of a fudge, really, of guilt or innocence, which allowed people to be dealt with or sentenced in a way which wasn't as a witch and executed. A thing I found strange when I looked at this was all but one of the people that were found half guilty were women, and they were all found half guilty in 1597. Now, we'll come to talk about at least some of them, and why um, they were found guilty altogether at the same time. But even when I looked at elsewhere in Scotland, it's clear that it wasn't just one court that people were finding half guilty, but a couple of places across Scotland, but they all seemed to happen in 1597. So I don't know what was going on there. That's strange. It's strange that that was just one year. And Isn't it? Isn't it? It's also strange that it ever existed as a as a decision. It's really bizarre. I think it must have been local courts just veering off the normal rules of justice and making it up as they go along. I mean, and just saying, you know, you were we know you were wrong, but not wrong enough. So we want we want to get you into trouble, but not enough trouble to kill you. Yes. We have to be seen to be doing something. Uh Uh-huh. That's it. That's exactly it. We have to do something with you. We can't let you off with this. And as we see the something could be just being an associate of. You're an associate mm-hmm. of a person that's a witch, and therefore that's enough by implication for us. But it just seems strange. The majority of the people found half guilty were ha- found half guilty in Aberdeen, and we're just going to speak about that. But the other one was found guilty in Ayr. So it's strange that two different jurisdictions in the same year decided to come up with this idea of half guilty. It's a strange one, that. And I think one of the things that you'd said to me before is that this might be a good idea for us to discuss now why we want a pardon and an apology, just to clarify that. Interestingly enough, we will come to see how these people's lives were affected when they were found half guilty. So if we ask for a pardon, a pardon apologises to those who have been convicted of something. But it doesn't take into consideration all the people whose lives were ruined by a witchcraft accusation or who were killed as a matter of torture. So an apology can be given, a blanket apology is what I would like to be given to everyone. So it's acknowledged that this was a terrible wrong that happened to everyone. 
um, mm-hmm. because we can't get pardons for people who weren't convicted. So the, the pardon would cover only those who are convicted. So the apology would mean that everybody that had been accused, regardless of the outcome, would be getting an apology. And I think some people struggle a wee bit with the notion of that because it was such a long time ago that obviously none of those people are in existence now. But I think it's more about just saying, you know, we can show that we are sorry for our ancestors doing that and that it's not an appropriate way to behave. It's not a kinder, moral way to behave ever. And I think that's a really important thing for us as a contemporary society. Absolutely. I mean, when the, the laws in relation to the passing of the Act pardoning people that were convicted of homosexual offences, it was made explicitly clear that it was not only for those who were still alive, but also for the memory of those that had died. So I think, as I've said before, and we've talked about the Black Lives Matter campaign, it's important to record history properly. And um, mm-hmm. people are saying, well, are you interfering with history by pardoning people? And I don't think so. I think you're just putting things right. No, this is the most peculiar thing about this, is that some some people, and it's only been a small amount of people, but some people have said, you're, you know, you're attempting or, you know, not just with us, but with the issue of like removing statues that were involved in slavery, for example, saying that that's, that's an attempt to rewrite history. It's not in any way to an attempt to rewrite history. It's a way to understand history properly and understand the truth of what happened and say, well, that was then, it was a wrong, and the society we live in now, we don't have to carry that with us. You know, we can say, well, that was wrong and when we would never, that would never be repeated. That's not rewriting history. That's understanding history. And it's understanding who we are now. It's not saying, you know, that we are the same as we were then because people evolve, obviously. I think it's really interesting. And also uh, talking about truth and history, I read something really interesting on Twitter this week as well and was talking to a historian this week who sort of reinforced this for me, that it's very, very important that we listen to experts who know about the history of witchcraft in particular and get the facts right you know, there's there's no point in people keeping like myths going that have got no no backing. There's no truth in it because it doesn't help us to understand who we are as people, particularly, which is what I'm really interested in. So we need to really kind of say, well, I have this idea in my head, but actually, maybe it's an urban myth. Like, is it true? Is it is it just something that's just become kind of folklore in a made up way, or is it something that genuinely happened? And I think a really good example of that is understanding how the witches were, the convicted witches were executed in Scotland and about things like, you know, what torture was used. And we'll have an expert on in the next couple of weeks who's going to be talking to us about that and and talking about what really happened. So then that'll be really useful. But um, yeah, it's just my my old days of sixth year studies history. Just I just remember my lovely old teacher, Mr. Casey, saying, you know, you have to have the facts. You have to have the facts. Otherwise, it's not history. We're just making it up. That sounds like sound advice, although in higher yes. history, certainly when I was doing my exam, I definitely was making some of it up. Cause well, you know, some, sometimes, you know, when you're 16, that's that's understandable. <laughs> but as adults, Claire, it has to be the truth. I, I, I do try not to make up history now. <laughs> that's not one of my hobbies. You know, Zoe, when we talked about Heel and Harrow, when we talked about duality, there's a duality in the story of women killed as witches and men killed as witches, which is that it is fascinating, but terrible at the same time. And there's also Mm -hmm. a duality in that there is the actual history of what happened 
and the folklore around what happened. You're absolutely right. It is absolutely important to, to know and to separate out the two. But it's also interesting to know the folklore and to mm-hmm. see sure. and to see that what you're saying is that we have to ensure that we know the line where the line is between the two so that we can properly yeah. appreciate what history is and what stories are. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a writer. You know, I, I deal in made up stuff. You know, that's I love it. You know, and I think that that there's a lot that can be taught to us as, as humans by folklore and by myths and by fairy tales and so on. I think that has an enormously important part in who we are as humans. But I think when we're talking about historical accuracy, we have to be careful to make sure that it is backed up, which is why we always really seek to have people that are experts who have done the work, you know, who have, who have really done the work and come on and educate us about it. I think it's really important that we understand it because, as we've said from the beginning, we weren't really taught about it in school. So I think it's important that we do know the facts of it. Absolutely. 100%. Speaking about facts, going on from what you were saying before about, about the records of people that were found half guilty, we've got a particular story, don't we? Yes, this week I I researched Half Guilty using, as ever, the uh, Survey of Scottish Witchcraft database and also a couple of books that I had a look at to to find this information. And I think, um, Zoe, what I found was a particular story in relation to one family, a very tragic story in relation to one family and how they were affected by an accusation of witchcraft and how some people were found guilty and some people were found half guilty and the differences between the two. So this is the Leas family. So remember, this all happened in 1597 and it appears to start with the mother of the family being accused of witchcraft on the 2nd of February in that year. Her name was Jonet Wishart and she was accused of casting spells. It's said that she was, and this is a quote, implicated by another witch. So it's likely some other poor soul had confessed and named her. And we've talked about that quite a lot of times about people being put under tremendous pressure with their with the torture, whether it's sleep deprivation or other, and eventually giving up other people's names, which, you know, presumably a lot of people did under absolute pressure. You know, it was to it was to get out of there, it was to make the torture stop. So so she was she was named by somebody else, implicated by another witch. She was accused of causing illness due to her spells. And it's noted that the commission, which is when they were given permission to prosecute this case, came from actually from James VI himself, so the lead guy. She was found guilty and executed. And then a month later, Jonet's husband, John, his son, Thomas, and their three daughters, Elsbeth, Jonet and Violet, were all put to trial. They all went on the same day, which was the 22nd of March, 1597, in Aberdeen at the toll booth. Then Thomas Leas, the son, was accused of witchcraft. He was accused of leading a witch's meeting. Ditte mentions that Leas's lover, Elspeth Reed, confessed that Leas had asked her to meet a man, to take him by the ear and put her foot on the man's foot, all of which she refused to do. The witch's meetings were said to include food, drink and dancing, all in the company of the devil. The meeting place was the Mercat Cross, he was also accused of having predicted the birth of a female child, his daughter, before Elspeth Reed knew that she was pregnant. And he was accused of helping his mother bewitch goods and gear belonging to a neighbour. Not quite sure what that means. Do you know what that means, Claire? Bewitch goods and gear? No, I think it's just like their chattels. I presume they're, 
their property. I'm not. But as if like to, like to bewitch it though, do you think that means that she, you know, they blamed her that it went missing or that it wasn't working properly or? Oh yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. What was the yeah. what was the nature of it? Um, yeah, uh-huh. possibly. I was thinking like farm equipment not working. Yeah, or, maybe or something of the likes. Hmm. And after the trial, he was killed as a witch, and the records record that he was burnt. John Lewis, the father of Thomas and husband of Jonet, was found half guilty by way of his association with his son and wife, as were his three daughters, Elspeth, Jonet, and Violet. There was no evidence at all that they'd done anything, and apparently they were absolved of the accusations but found guilty by association. That's really crazy. Their punishment was that they were found half guilty, and that meant that they were then banished from Aberdeen, but there are no records to show where they went. So, I mean, that's interesting, this idea about the apology for people like this, you know, to keep in mind that they weren't found guilty, they were found half guilty, but their entire life must have been ruined by that, to be banished. You know, it's, it wouldn't have been at all an easy thing to happen to have to walk into a new place and start again because people would be like, well, where have you come from? What's going on with you? And then it would carry around with you. Exactly. It was a time when people, as we understand it, didn't move around so much. So it wasn't usual for people to simply arrive in another place. People, yeah. people, People's names and histories were important. You know, a new person would be something of interest. And if, if we just take any of the sisters that were involved they'd seen their mother and brother killed as a witch and their father and two sisters banished along with them leaving their friends their family and having to to go somewhere else so it just shows from one accusation from one accusation entire families were ruined and i i don't imagine that that was an uncommon type of story it was certainly a very uncommon type of disposal that they were found half guilty but i think i mean there was literally nothing to suggest that these people were involved in witchcraft but it was enough that two other members of the family had been found guilty as witches so by association they must have had some involvement so strange so today we remember Johnet Wishart, Thomas Leas, John Leas, Elsbeth Leas, Johnet Leas, and Violet Leas. This week's guest is Andrew Tickell. He's definitely a brilliant person to follow on Twitter if you want legal analysis. And his Twitter bio describes him as being law and Scottish politics, Jacobin sympathetic scribbler at GCU Law Lecturer, at Sun Scottish National Columnist and Jaded Flaneur. So our guest today, Andrew Tickell, is going to be talking to us about some legal aspects of the witch trials. Yeah, the reason that we got in contact with Andrew was that we noticed on Twitter that he was going to add the witchcraft trials to the syllabus of the course that he was teaching on miscarriages of justice. And I'm delighted to see that I'll be going to the university to talk about miscarriages of justice and hopefully to talk about the women that were killed as witches too. Andrew, welcome to the Witches of Scotland. My very great pleasure to be with you. Would you mind telling our listeners a wee bit about what you do and who you are? Sure, of course. Well, I suppose I have two different hats. So by day, I suppose I'm a lecturer in law at Glasgow Caledonian University. 
So I'm a legal academic and I sort of began life being more interested in constitutions and things. But as you will, you mutate over the course of an academic career. And I mutated into more of a criminal law, evidence and miscarriage of justice sort of teacher. So those are the kind of themes that I mostly deal with day and daily in uh, Glasgow Caledonian University. So I'm kind of interested in that, but I also am a writer. Um, I'm not sure if I really qualify as a journalist. My shorthand isn't up to it. But nevertheless, I write about politics, about law, about culture occasionally. Um, in a range of different places, I write a weekly column in the Sunday National as well. So those are my kind of two divided identities. <laughs> we wanted to ask you on today in particular because um, you tweeted in response to the Witches of Scotland campaign. Can you tell people how you're interacting with it? Sure, absolutely. Well, for a, a few years, I've been running, not all that long actually, uh, a fourth year option module for my students on miscarriages of justice. It was a course that I came up with, partly, you know, tapping into the Netflix generation's enthusiasm for stories of the wrongfully and unjustly condemned. But I wanted to it have quite a broad sweep to it. You know, it's quite easy and quite right to be concerned with wrongful convictions in a classic legalistic sense. And we, you could run a, a module on that. But it always struck me as more interesting to ask the more fundamental question, what do we really mean by a miscarriage of justice anyway? I mean, you, Claire, will be applying you know, a legal interpretation of that in the course of your advocacy in, in the courts and in front of the appeal court. But you know, in uni, I don't think we necessarily have to take a, a limited definition of that. And so from the very beginning of the module, I wanted it to have a really uh, open sense of what do we mean by a miscarriage of justice? What kind of cases are we talking about? And you know, from its very beginnings, it's been preoccupied by some examples of people who were, by the standards of the law, by the standards of the criminal law and the books at the time, by what they actually did, you know, they were found guilty of crimes that now you look at and think, geez, where's the justice there? Think of Alan Turing as one figure, um, unjustly condemned, but legally condemned for, for being gay. And so from the very beginnings of the module, I wanted it to have a really broad sense and sensibility about what we mean by this idea. And partly it's just assessed through having individuals pick their own thing to look at, pick their own study. And, you know, the stories are great. Some are very Scottish, some are American, some are from New Zealand. I mean, all over the world, you're, you're hearing stories. And so every year I get new examples and new stories I wasn't familiar with from the courts and outside the courts from all different corners of the world about people being wrongfully accused. And so for a number of years, the Witches of Scotland does a kind of co was a group that I wanted to find space for in the course, but I was kind of struggling, this is a very academic thing, to find a good bit of reading, you know, just something that would work for a couple of hours blether with the students. And then last year, one of my students did The Witches, did The Witches. So she, she was focusing on what do the modern literature tell us about false confessions, circumstances which tend to incentivize them. And so she made the, the, the obvious links that a number of people have between the deprivation of sleep, the deprivation, all, all of these kind of techniques which drive uh, wrongful confessions. And so I thought, you know, with that very wonderful piece of work that one of my students did and with your campaign, it all came together to give it that kind of modern as well as a historic resonance and to raise these fundamental questions about what do we really mean by a miscarriage of justice? And critically, what should we do about them? So that, that's the long answer, I suppose, to your question. I would actually love to be on that course because as somebody... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Zoe and I are also true crime fanatics. You, oh, yeah. really? Uh -huh. you, you have a Netflix uh, true crime court case, and we're both there as well for that. 
Um, there's, there's so many good stories. I mean, I, I begin with with one like Oscar Slater. The case of Oscar Slater deserves to be world famous. And, and then the, despite the fact that it's a murder case from Glasgow at the very turn of the 20th century, it's got so many dynamics which are so familiar in terms of a suspect suspect, uh, a very whiter than white victim, bad eyewitness evidence, um, single-minded prosecutors, single-minded police officers operating on tunnel vision, you no know, press vilification, an ethnic... You can work all through and, you know, we have these stories in Scotland as well and partly just because of the culture and the way that true crime remains quite American you know if you want your podcasts on this if you want your programs on it then a lot of it is going to be American accented whereas I think the equivalent Scottish cases just for the main for the main anyway probably don't have that big profile and big recognition with the public that I would argue they merit in view of just the interests of the facts you know now, we have quite a lot of international listeners, and I'm wondering if you can, for their benefit, maybe just tell a wee bit of the Oscar Slater story. Now, I know it's going off piste a little bit. Claire, do you mind if we just we diversion here? As long as Andrew doesn't, go for it. No. Andrew, do you mind? Can, you, can you explain that a little bit to our other listeners? Of course. I was aware as soon as I mentioned it, it was a bit of a rabbit hole. But Oscar Slater was a German Jewish man um, who lived in Glasgow in the turn of the 20th century, and he was accused of the murder murder of an 80-year-old woman called Marion Gilchrist in the West End of Glasgow. Her home was accessed by her killer, um, who rifled through her personal papers, took a single diamond brooch from her washhand basin, and then walked out of the house, cool as a cucumber, walking past her maid, who was called Helen Lambie, and a downstairs neighbour who needed his spectacles but wasn't wearing them, who both saw the killer leave the house. And inside, they found the body of Marion Gilchrist, this 80-year-old woman, having been brutally done to death by this person unknown. And so effectively, the trail went after him based on eyewitness evidence, which shifted a lot about what this person looked like. Did he have a crooked nose? Did he have a a moustache or not? Was he wearing a Donegal cap or a fawn coat? And so they had that line of inquiry. And then they had this diamond brooch that was taken from the scene of the crime, which seemed the most powerful piece of evidence that could connect a person to the scene of the crime. Well, suspicion fell on Oscar Slater, who was a shady customer, as so often people turn out to be in these miscarriage of justice cases. They're not Disney victims. They are plausible casting in the role of the killer. He was a man who um, made his money in ways that to Presbyterian Scotland in 1909 did not seem entirely ethical. You know, he was a man who drank, smoked, played billiards, dealt in gems. And ultimately, suspicion fell on him because he pawned his mistress's brooch, which was a diamond brooch. So the police thought, aha, we have our man here. And even more incriminating, apparently, than that, when they went to arrest him, they discovered that he decamped from Scotland gone down on the train to Liverpool, hopped on a boat called the Lusitania and made for the United States. So it looked like a flight from justice. But in fact, it was no such thing. The brooch he'd pawned did not belong to the victim. The eyewitnesses who identified him gave very sketchy evidence against him. He agreed to come back to Scotland and face trial where much was made of his personal life. The fact that his partner was a sex worker was raised in evidence. And the judge said, a man like this who lives in this way, how could he benefit from the presumption of innocence? And so Oscar Slater was convicted and spent many, many years in Peter Heed. He was sentenced to death, in fact, though that was commuted and was only released um, as a result of an appeal court hearing in the 1920s sometime afterwards. But he came to prominence because 
amongst other things, people who believe he was wrongfully convicted included Arthur Conan Doyle, the inventor of Sherlock Holmes, who wrote a wonderful pamphlet about it you can find on the internet, which really summarizes the public case for why Oscar Slater was wrongfully condemned. So a story with so much in it, that's as short as I could make it. It's got so much yeah. in it, but so many resonances for a modern, uh, a modern student watcher some with interest in these wrongful convictions. And what we've got in relation to his case, which unfortunately we don't have in relation to the cases of the women and men accused as witches, is an absolutely splendid blow-by-blow account of what happened at the trial because it was watched and a book was written that's right, it's William Roughhead, uh, who, who's great. I mean, they recently published over in America, you can get copies here of his, his collection, because he went to lots of different cases and wrote about a range of other miscarriage of justice cases, including the Sandyford murders, slightly further up the road in Glasgow, involving a woman who was wrongfully convicted of murdering a friend by a sort of suspicious old goat, a lecherous old goat who manifested himself as an um, elder in the Church of Scotland, but allowed this maid to be blamed for murdering someone else. So Roughhead was a great writer, and you can still get access to a bunch of his accounts of things like Madeline Smith, as well as Oscar Slater. And as you say, that was absolutely critical towards bringing that to public attention, which of course it was. It was the Netflix of its day, albeit using slightly older fashioned technology. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but that is absolutely right. And I've, I've been lucky enough to see the book on another woman accused of something uh, famously acquitted or not proven, Madeline Smith. But I think this is probably for the podcast that Zoe and I are going to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's our next project. That's our next yeah. project, a true crime project. Um, so we look forward to speaking to you about that. Now we've nabbed you for Witches of Scotland. <laughs> my then, pleasure. Tell me, tell me, in terms of miscarriage of justice and when you're talking about it broadly, what sort of things do you look at? Because I, as a lawyer, obviously look at the legal test that's set down in statute and there is said that there's only one test for a miscarriage of justice in Scotland and it is that, that there has been a miscarriage of justice. So it's not terribly illuminating. Um, <laughs> we, we have to try and fit it into various boxes when we argue things in the appeal court, that the appeal court recognises a miscarriage of justice. But what, with a particular emphasis on the witches, do you look at when you're discussing a miscarriage of justice? Yeah, I mean, you can go for different definitions. I mean, some people would say it's just about wrongful convictions. But I think what you see increasingly in the scholarship around this is, is looking at it as a study of legal error, if you like. I mean, we can talk about injustice till the cows come home and all the different things that might be an injustice socially. But I think if I was going to define it in a limited way, you'd talk about legal error, I suppose, in the widest sense. So a popular books like The Secret Barrister, for example, talk about things like wrongful denial of bail, your lawyer being incompetent and you spend months in prison. Well, we can think of that as being potentially a miscarriage of justice in the wider sense of a legal error or an error around the legal system. Or, for example, some of the dodgy DNA cases involving the wrong people being put in the frame for crimes they haven't committed because the labs mishandle forensic samples. You know, even though you're not convicted of any crime, I think it's entirely appropriate to see that kind of thing as being a miscarriage of justice in the wider sense. I think what's interesting about the witches, though, and we can maybe tackle this in different ways, is your look Looking, of course, back to earlier centuries, um, I suppose we might quibble about the evidence in these cases. You know, could any reasonable tribunal find someone guilty of being a witch? 
on the facts. I think it raises really interesting questions raised by your petition about what do we do about this? And, and what's the point of doing it, really? I mean, over the past wee while, there's been a lively exchange of views, if I could put it that way, about whether it's a waste of one's lifeblood to be concerned about the lifeblood that these men and women spent, mostly women, as a consequence of suspicion visited upon them by their society. I think you can see similar arguments could at least be made in principle about the other pardons and disregards we've seen in recent times. I mean, we've seen in the field of convictions for protest around mining during the Thatcher period, John Scott recommended that that should be addressed. There are still living miners, I suppose, and people with those convictions and a sense of injustice, which that addresses. Equally powerfully, the pardons and disregard for men convicted of homosexual offences before, before that was addressed. Again, there are living bodies, men who were able to testify to the significance of this in terms of their life. Whereas I think what's interesting and challenging, I suppose, in the case of witches is, is the muteness through history of, of that experience and perhaps the lack of public awareness of, of, of the fact that it happened. And it happened in some cases in quite a, a sophisticated legal way, um, which I suppose might be the kind of thing which, which gives lawyers like yourself the fear, if, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah, you couldn't because of the because of the misogyny of the structure. You, you couldn't have been the lawyer that was prosecuting the witch, but yeah. you know, um, you, your brothers from the legal profession are implicated up to their necks in effectively this. Well, yeah, this profound injustice. So many interesting things that I want to talk to you about there. You're absolutely right. What is different from this campaign? is that we do know, we have no surviving members of the people who were collectively accused, tortured, convicted of witchcraft. So what does a pardon say? What is it that a pardon does for these people? And I suppose I looking at it in a completely legal way, my first question was, could I seek to overturn the convictions of any mm -hmm. people convicted of witchcraft? So that was the first thing that I looked at. And the answer to that was I could not find any living relatives. And even if I could, I very much doubt the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission <laughs> for referring a case back, saying that someone now had a legitimate interest in their forebears conviction and whether or not they would send that back. And as you know, of course, it wouldn't help anyone else. It would only help that one person. So even if I was mm -hmm. over that hurdle. So the next thing I thought of was, well, how... In the modern day, particularly looking at the Scottish Parliament, how has it dealt with the people convicted of homosexual offences and also latterly the minors, although that came to light after our campaign had already started? I looked into the wording of the way that the pardons had been provided before and the wording was very interesting because it seemed to suggest that this was being done not only for the living, but also for the dead. And I found that acknowledgement a reassurance, certainly, and asking for it in this case, because there was an acknowledgement that it still meant something to address historical injustices that had occurred and to say sorry for them, not only in a, a way of simply apologising, but actually formally saying sorry. And the, mm -hmm. the, the nearest way that one can do that, I think, in the modern world is a pardon. Is the question of addressing miscarriage of justice, is it about saying sorry? Is that what is that what it's about, <laughs> apologising to people? I think people often get uh, rather in a fankle when we, we talk about these kind of things, because many societies have faced similar 
issue. So I'm reminded just what you were saying there of, of the example of Australia, for example, which dealt with its legacy of, of its behaviour as a state towards its Aboriginal people. And and there, uh, the Prime Minister back in what the 1990s um, apologised. And that caused, uh, provoked a range of the debates which, which you're experiencing around this petition, around the idea, well, why should I apologise for something I'm not responsible for, being the counter-argument. And I'm reminded of uh, something that a Lebanese-Australian uh, philosopher called Raymond Gaita said about this, that the really when we're talking about guilt and sort of shame, they're different things. And to conflate the two is to make a kind of intellectual confusion. I mean, I didn't burn the witch. <laughs> you didn't burn the witch. We didn't burn the witches. Um, so in the sense, it would be misplaced profoundly, I suppose, to feel personally guilty for that. But Gaita makes the point that if you're going to invest meaning, significance, a sense of your own rootedness in the world, in the good things that your community have done down the centuries. And heaven knows most people want to they identify in some ways with you know, the jurisdiction, their country. If you want to do that, if you want to take the good, then you have to be prepared to own the bad as well, because both are part of an accurate account of what happened. So you can't swell with a sense of pride if you are utterly unprepared to confront uh, the things that your collective and your forebears did and of course, that's a mobile picture. Many of many of us are, you know, folk that have come here from a range of different places. But if you own our history, then you have to own both sides of it. And I think that was Gaita's point. I think he's right, in fact. And so, in some ways, the idea of guilt is a bit of a distraction because no one's saying you're guilty of this, but it is saying this is our history, and it's our history which is worth knowing about for starters. <laughs> which again, I think, is open with the witches to question about how much it becomes more than a sort of jokey burn the witch, seal the witch. You know, the deep unseriousness about the discussion of the idea of torturing women to death, um, which is, you know, well, make of that what you will. I mean, it's something that we've, we've, had, we've had very little criticism, really, from people about it. But the criticism we have had, um, I'm a bit like a, a broken record here, a stuck record, is that it's generally been from men that have criticised it, and they have generally made jokes at the same time along the lines of, you know, well, we've got a witch in charge of the country, you know, or um, they've missed one of the witches, she lives in my house, you know, mm -hmm. or why don't we dunk them to see if they're telling the truth, you know, that sort of thing, which there is a, there's always, well, it's just a joke, you know, but it's something that's, that's really deeply misogynistic. There's this really deep sort of strain through it of, yeah, but you're worthless, you know, and I think that's, for, for me, that's one of the reasons that I think it's really important that we look at this is because it sort of brings out into the light this misogyny that a lot of people do or some people do hold and say, actually, do you know what? It's 2021. You're going to just quit it. <laughs> just quit my upstairs neighbour has a wonderful uh, T-shirt that she wears occasionally, which is what we are the survivors of all the witches you failed to burn, <laughs> which yeah. is magic. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, I think in terms of the, the wider sense about how do these things happen, it's also sort of something we might take modern lessons from around what's I always say to my students, you know, you need, if you want to understand how these things happen, you have to take them seriously and, and imagine yourself as, you know, not necessarily the perpetrator, but if we're talking about, you know, police officers with tunnel vision around a case, well, these aren't 
morons. I mean, these are people applying their minds to the world as they understand it, and they're making errors. So let's try and enter their shoes and make sense of it. And I think around, you know, thinking about scapegoating, which is another one way of, of, of looking at this. Well, how do we end up with scapegoating and why do we do it? What's the good of it? I know that's such a, a strange kind of counterintuitive question, but it's such a persistent dynamic across culture, in drama, in religion, in a range of different things. Why do we do it? And what What's the good we get out of it? Because there is a good, a collective good we get out of it. There's different ways of thinking about it. One of my favorite ways is from a, a French thinker who made most of his career in America called René Girard. And René Girard makes the point that desire, what we want in life, or indeed what we don't want, so the, things we, the, the burdens we want to avoid. We often tell ourselves that the things we want in life are because they're intrinsically good things. You know, We want that pair of shoes because they're great shoes. We want that, to drive that car because it's the really great car. But in truth, uh, Girard says, we mostly desire things because other people want them. <laughs> and so it's one of those things that human beings learn through mimesis. We mimic each other, just like we learn language by mimicking our parents when we're talking. And so his argument is, basically, when you've got limited resources in a society, including a sense of security, when that begins to get eaten up by many demands of people wanting the same kind of things, you get social tensions arising. And those social tensions down the centuries in complex societies and in simple ones, or more simple ones in terms of just the number of human bodies involved, they earth some of these conflicts by putting the sins of the community onto that goat, just like the book of Leviticus, and chasing it out of the village. You know, the, the core of that kind of thinking, that what we can do is pour all of our sense of social anxiety onto a convenient scapegoat, and, and in the modern form, not just chase them into the desert, but do them to death to ease our sense of, of, of um, anxiety in a difficult world. Well, you know, I don't think you need to look terribly far in our society, in our politics, in international politics, to see that kind of mimetic desire, scapegoating mechanism playing out very powerfully. Now, I don't know enough about Scotland in the 16th century to say to what extent and what factors were driving that sense of insecurity. But nevertheless, I think in any student of miscarriage of justice, you need to understand that social psychology, which can perhaps help us explain why it made Scots in the 16th century feel better to strangle and burn these people. Because this is about humanity and human cognition, which although it's subject to, of course, change in what you think and why you think it, nevertheless is, is still prey to these little creatures of the underworlds of our soul, you know, these demands of our unconscious that come up and cause this kind of thing to happen. I think that's so key, Andrew, that it's, these are things that happened to people when people were as intelligent as we currently are, had the same emotions as we do they weren't just because they didn't have iphones and fast cars didn't mean they weren't as intelligent they couldn't understand the world they couldn't they couldn't process the world they, they had all the information that we have they were of course living at a very very different time and the different time i think in the between the 16th and 18th century was that the church had a stranglehold over people and they vehemently believed that the devil walked amongst them. There is no doubt we've spoken to a number of people, including Professor Julian Goodyear, who says, let's be absolutely clear about this. The belief was that witches existed and the object was to find them and to weed them out of our society. And it was that premise that underlied all of these things at the moment. And more recently, and I think we've certainly spoken about this before, is that Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, 
And she said she was always surprised when people thought it was a futuristic sci-fi book when she actually based it on the trials that took place in America, the very small amount of trials that took place in America. And her book was, I think, dedicated to or written as a result of um, her interest in a woman called Mary Webster, Half-Hung Mary, who she mm-hmm. also wrote a very, very famous poem about, which is very, very haunting. And she had a conversation with Ruth Bader Ginsburg where Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, what you're thinking about this kind of the demonization of women, it won't happen again because women are now in positions of power. They are in our parliaments, they are in our courts, they are our medics, they are our people who hold positions of power. And uh, Margaret wasn't as confident about that. And I don't think I'm as confident about that either because I still see places in the world where mostly women and children are still called witches. That's still used as a tool of persecution. We don't have to look far away in the world for that happening. I mean, we only we need to look as sort of recently, for example, at Hillary Clinton or Nicola Sturgeon, you know, like the word witch is still used really heavily to shut women down. And there was the the very recent interviews with Mary Beard where she was talking about that women being called witches beyond a certain age when they're no longer I suppose fertile. They're no they're no longer useful in society. They're no longer attractive in the way that young women are. And then then you you reach into this sort of crone sort of version of your life where you're a witch and therefore useless, but slightly scary. There's a, there's mm-hmm. a you know it's funny but also a little bit creepy. You know, or you could be a bit evil or you know something. It's it's very interesting and obviously completely horrifying. There is definitely that word witch. You know, I've said this a few times. I occasionally go into the search in in Twitter and put in the word witch to see what's currently <laughs> being said. Really to see if if our podcast has been touched. <laughs> I put it in and it almost always is about Nicola Sturgeon is the first hit that comes up. And she's routinely referred to as the wee witch, you know, alongside the wee dictator. But it's it's very, very frequently that she's described as a witch, which is just in Scotland, you know. And I think part of it is that people don't know this history by and mm-hmm. large, you know, which is part of our mission is to get people educated about it. But I think also it's just a very neat way of saying Shut up, wifey, you wee witch. You know, it's, it's a really quick way of shutting people down. Yeah, it's interesting that around the sort of educational thing. I mean, it's always hard to know how, how much your education was, was kind of general or whether you went to a strange school with people. I mean, we did so much British history and German history. I seem to be perpetually obsessed with, with the threat that Germany poses to European peace. I don't know why that was relevant during the, um, the late 2000s. But yeah, it's amazing about these local histories. I find anyway, at least when I was educated, maybe things are different now, that these stories about Scottish history aren't really, aren't really told in this, in this way. And even actually, to some extent, the kind of religious history of Scotland as this Presbyterian bastion of a particular outlook, you know, the comparison of Scotland to other European countries and the prevalence of this kind of witch hunting that went on and what that might tell us about that society. I don't really know why education in Scotland seems so reluctant to talk about often even Scottish books plays, in my experience anyway, um, as well as our history. But as you say, I suppose it is a phrase with continuing resonance in terms of our politics and ways of constructing people. You would be the same as us then. You had no teaching on the history of 
woman, I suppose, the history of witches in your education? I was trying to cast my mind back. I don't think so. I mean, I had a slightly weird one because I grew up in the, the West Coast in Mid-Argyll. Um, so I was looking on the map to see if, if, any, if anyone got burned. And I mean, there was one or two people, I suppose, who were slightly eccentric druids around my immediate vicinity who, who did believe in things like fairies. So some of that um, legacy of, of superstition was one that was still alive when I was there. I mean, I did know people who honestly believed in the wind being <laughs> full of noises and, uh, you know, the, the fairies being there as, as a real life phenomenon now. But no, no, I mean, not even in primary school where it was a bit more open minded in terms of the education. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, as I've said several times. So I got I learned a lot about cheviot sheeps and arable farming. Quite right too. Where was that? <laughs> <laughs> I I know in, how to keep in Glasgow. Glasgow. You weren't even you weren't even brought up in the country, were you? You weren't even Hill. in a farming community. Govan Hill. That's in Govan Hill. They went with the cheviots. Uh-huh. So overrun. Overrun with sheep there. I was only one generation away, I suppose, part of my family being Irish from living on a farm. So, you know, perhaps maybe they thought I would go, but, but it was bizarre. And as you say, yeah, I, I went from Cheviot sheep farming to World War Two, and that was... And nothing in between. That covers all the main points. <laughs> that's history. I've done history now. <laughs> so tell us, how are you going to approach the story of the Witches of Scotland in your course? Yes, well, I think it's it really raises a couple of points that you've highlighted. What do we do about mass miscarriages of justice? I mean, you've experienced representing mostly individual people, individually wrongfully condemned. But of course, very often that legal framework of individuals wronged fails to capture the wider social point. That actually to look at this as a series of individuals tragically wrongfully condemned is to completely miss the fact this is a systematic persecution of people who don't merit it. And I think that is one of the challenges, actually, and one of the big limits of taking a very legalistic view on this, because you you look for individual factors and individual stories. And actually, what does the witches of Scotland, the witches of Europe tell us? It tells us about those wider social factors, about how whole categories of people, what 80 odd percent of them being women, become lightning rods through which their society Earths their anxieties and in the process of that destroys them utterly. You know, who's picked as the victim? Who's the one who's convincing casting as the witch? Now, I've used that metaphor a few times, but I do think thinking about miscarriages of justice in a kind of dramatic way about good and bad casting is, is actually quite helpful. You know, the idea, we often talk about it in the wider culture of you know how people look. We may not be phrenologists in the Victorian sense anymore, but how people present in court, whether it's, does that person look like a rapist or not? Or, you know, is that the kind of guy like Oscar Slater, who would have done this terrible deed. You know, human beings are, and the whole court system, which makes the drama of an encounter, an eyes meeting across a courtroom, and says you can judge credibility and reliability based on how people answer questions in an unfamiliar environment. I think we can ask awkward questions about all of those assumptions. But nevertheless, casting becomes hugely important. And sometimes if you have, well, guilty people who are miscast, that can be very helpful I think, to result in them walking out of court acquitted of crimes they factually are guilty of. And equally, of course, very often what you find with these miscarriage of justice cases is the casting is plausible. You know, and I think so often the whole discussion of miscarriages of justice from the kind of Stephen Avery version making a murderer type thing suffers from a kind of Disney version of this, um, which sort of imagines in two different ways. And um, the, the victims of miscarriages of justice are going to be sort of whiter than white victims. Um, and also, at the other end of it, that they'll come out of this experience of 16 or 20 years in prison um, undamaged 
by the process of that injustice they've experienced. Both of these assumptions seem to me fundamentally mistaken, unfair, misunderstand how miscarriages of justice happen and don't allow people suffering they've actually experienced to have a kind of moral damage on them. So I think in terms of the witches, what I see this as is as taking us to that casting point and making us think about well, you, what is it culturally that meant that of all the different ways you could explain and expel the social anxieties and of the community, why did lightning crash in the head of these people? Of all of the other options that you have, yes, witches were real, Satan's real, they believe that certain you know, damaging social outcomes, environmental catastrophes can be attributed to the malice of you know, uh, the fallen angel. I mean, that's one way of explaining how these things happen. But I think it really does, it takes us into that about that wider picture about why is it that some groups of people in given societies preponderantly end up being the convincing scapegoats for those societies. Andrew, I think that's something that really, really grabs me about the idea of Witches of Scotland and why I still feel so strongly about it, because unsurprising, Zoe and I are, are both feminists, as you would imagine, and we are struck that we live in a society which is still a patriarchy. Men, as a generality, still control power, still control land, still control money. And that is why I find it so interesting that women were the perceived at the time of the witch trials to be weaker in the sense that they were both intellectually and morally weaker than men and therefore susceptible to the devil's charms. And therefore, that's why women would be witches. And of course, what more would the devil be doing with women than having sex with them? Because the devil had been normally always seen as a man, then the people with whom the devil would be having sex were women. That was, you know, that that was, again, the rationale that was given. And you just feel that unless and until we don't live in a patriarchy anymore, where women are equal, then it's particularly important to examine the, the causes of why these miscarriages of justice happened so that we do not go on to repeat them in some way. And I think that's right. I mean, the old idea of what Eve sets the balls of corruption rolling, that sort of fear, anxiety is something which I think you're right. Our own society is, is not um, immune from at all. I was recently reading um, one of my kind of lockdown reads that I got into was Ursula Le Guin. I don't know if you've ever read anything by Ursula Le Guin, but I was very struck by um, by a quote of hers, which really goes, I think, fundamentally to some of the issues which you're um, which you're talking about. Just let me find it because it's really it captures for me. It's from her final book that she wrote in her Earthsea kind of cycle, and she wrote interestingly about a bunch of different things. But in that, she really reflects on male mistrust of women in general, and this is what she said. She says, "How men feared women," she thought, walking among the late flowering roses. Not as individuals, but women, when they talked together, worked together, spoke up for one another, then men saw plots, cabals, constraints, traps being laid. I mean, you could add witches at the end of that, and you've got a pretty nice mm -hmm. expression yeah. of something with that anxiety. Which cabal for coven, and, and you've got it covered. That's an excellent quote. I've not heard that before. It makes me think of the Margaret Atwood quote, which I'm going to paraphrase here because I can't remember exactly. But she said quite some years ago that men fear that women will laugh at them and women fear that men will kill them. You know, and there's there, you know, it's still sadly, I think that is still there's a prevalence of that. You know, we've still got pretty horrendous domestic violence rates and so on. And the idea that 
what makes it worse for me, the story about the witches, um, the history of the witches, not a story, what happened with the witches, is not just that it was that men went, well, here's a woman that we're going to scapegoat. You know, for example, Lilius A.D. that we've looked at very recently um, in our most recent podcast was from Fife. And because she wasn't actually convicted, she died before she was convicted, her, um, her skeleton remained so you'll probably know this, but they took her skull and there was photographs made of the skull and then a reconstruction was done by some of the Dundee University um, academics there. And they worked out that she had been very tall. She was about six foot tall and that she had very prominent front teeth. So there was a, one of the things that Doug Spears, the archaeologist, said to us was that she would, you know, she would have stood out for that reason, that she was a bit odd looking. She was a bit strange, you know, this, this idea that strangeness could then sort of bring the bring the witchcraft thing to you. What makes it worse for me? It's not only that which is appalling. It's the sort of the complicity of lots of women in the communities that were the ones often that would say she's a witch, she's a witch. Go and look at her. Whether you know this interesting thing about was it to save themselves? Was it because it was exciting? Was it because it gave them sort of social currency? Was it because they had no power and this was a way of getting some power? Was it to get land or money? You know, that's the part that I find horribly compelling, actually, about it. But maybe it could be explained by that idea of, of some of this at least being unconscious. You know, if we go back to that way of thinking about it, I mean, it's a world where conscious explanations are rooted in myth, a fear of the, the, the island being full of noises and, you know, spirits being abroad. But I suppose transference in the simple psychological sense of that which most uh, riles us up about other people and the vices we are most able to identify in others are our own vices concealed from ourselves. You know, the accuser who is suddenly conscious of, you know, she's the witch. I think there's an awful lot of that you can see in these kind of cultures. Um, you know, anxieties, again, are largely unconscious. And I think that's such a huge part of how these things work. I mean, people, I suppose here's the other thing. People generally don't want in modern Scotland, modern justice systems to convict the wrong person. <laughs> I mean, in the sense, I think one could probably say much the same about the past. You know, there's no good. You don't get the emotional and psychological hit. Your anxieties don't, aren't relieved if you burn the wrong witch. <laughs> but of course, one of the things about, about that whole idea of, of the earthing of tensions is it's only temporary. You know, with mm -hmm. these scapegoats, there's always the other one. I mean, it never works yeah. forever. It's it's like um, it's like the modern version of this is 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 people's favorite beauty regime. You know, buy our buy our particular product. It works for approximately a week, but you have to keep buying it. It's the similar sort of logic to some of this kind of earthing of social tensions. That it's never an ultimate solution to the social problem. It just locks you in unconsciously into the structure where you expel all of your poison in this way. Yeah. That's exactly, in a practical sense, what happened because one person was accused of being a witch. They were perhaps held. Um, they had sleep deprivation. They were asked about having sex with the devil. They were asked about who did you meet, who your friends were. And gibbering maybe at a later stage, they gave a, a full and detailed coven meeting with all these different women. They would then go to the other women. They would treat them in the same way. They would talk about other women. And before you know it, that anxiety that people had that the devil was amongst us took hold like a fire itself and spread through country, Scotland's country, burning for 200 years. There were four particular periods when it burned strongly, but it, that anxiety, which people were trying to identify the witch and stamp it out, caused there to be more allegations of witchcraft, which then caused there to be more women that were killed, feeding itself and 
only after 200 years really burning out. Burning out. I think what's interesting to me as well, and this was a point my student made back when I was first kind of inspired to this, is that we're also dealing with confessions which are of the kind that I think for the average person today are the most difficult potentially to understand, you know, in terms of the typology of false confessions, you know, the voluntary one, the, the coerced compliant one, and then lastly, this idea of the coerced internalized one, of which the most famous, one of the most famous examples, as you'll know, is, is the Reykjavik confessions case involving people being convinced as a result of their interrogation that they did in fact kill people that they didn't kill and there was no evidence to support that you know the idea i I lied i confessed to a crime to cover up the fact my partner was driving the car that people can understand i did it to make the questioning stop i did it to try and get away i did it to stop being tortured i think people can sort of understand that but if you are in the territory where the confessor the false confessor is actually subjectively convinced they've seen things they have not seen and are perhaps people who are more inclined to summon up those imaginary phantoms. I think that's also another dynamic, which I thought was really is really modern, about how these forms of interrogation can produce this kind of un- unreliable testimony of such a, a lurid kind. Well, so interestingly, when I was researching this before the Witches of Scotland, because I've been interested in the women accused of witches for a very long time, but before the campaign started, I was researching the Lord Advocate Mackenzie, the bloody Mackenzie, And uh, for all that he was called the Bloody Mackenzie, he thought that, inverted commas, most of the witch trials weren't actually about witches at all. And he rather subtly had to go around trying to kibosh as many prosecutions as he could, it would seem. And he told tale of a very, very sad one. It was particularly poignant when he recorded a woman being interrogated and she asked her interrogators, can I be a witch and not know it? She believed so much that the people that were telling her that she was a witch, and she was living in a society where those people were the good people, they were the holy people, they were the people in whom society placed a trust, that she was thinking, well, maybe they're right, maybe I am a witch, but is it possible for me not to know? And that just, it really got to me, to be frank, that that feeling, because you just wonder what sort of state would a woman be to feel that. It just really really resonated in a yeah. in a very appalling, appallingly bad way. I just couldn't really see how sad it was that someone was in that situation. Not expressing myself very well, but that's probably just because I'm thinking about it all over again. <laughs> No, but that, but that's the right because because to even ask that question to 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 open the door to the possibility that unconsciously asleep, unbeknownst to yourself, you are this terrible thing. Um, and I suppose that is what it was for people. It wasn't just accused of you know putting a hex on someone, your neighbor's um, sheep. You know, we're talking about being a morally corrupted person. I mean, I suppose the idea that you are secretly, unbeknownst to yourself, that kind of person. Well, we see culturally echoes of that, and you know, your Jekyll and Hyde type phenomenon. It really speaks to quite human, basic horrors of the fact that maybe your conscious mind isn't the full part of yourself, and maybe you do things when you lack control, which will damn you in the grand scheme of things. And I suppose that's part of it as well. Without, And that's one of the challenges, I suppose, just historically in general as well. It goes back to the point you were making about taking the past seriously on its own terms. And I think it's so hard for us to do. I mean, when, when we're looking historically, there's a terrible temptation to kind of universalize in a kind of, you know, sort of nice and friendly sort of way. I mean, you were sort of saying, you know, people with the same emotions as us and the same intellect as us. And of course, that that's true. But what the intellects and emotions graft onto is a world which, 
for, I mean, I, I'm atheist myself, you know, I, I don't live in a world which is populated by spirits or an all-seeing creator God that's going to ultimately, you know, mark my homework and tell me whether I'm for the bad fire or the good, you know? But if you are someone in that worldview who lives in that cosmology where the whole world re- it just resonates in a completely different way. And I think, I think sometimes, I'm not a historian, but sometimes it can be such an intellectually challenging thing to work yourself into the imagination and the emotional reactions of someone who, who, who does that. But if you do, I think you do have the reaction you had to that confession because it's got such a terrible melancholic tragicness to it of someone who's just so saturated with their own social preoccupations that they're beginning to doubt by the sounds of it, their own sanity, judgment, recall, memory. And of course, memory is so much more fragile than any of us are often able to admit to ourselves or about others. Absolutely. So, so tell us, we'll put you on the spot, Andrew, what do you think? And please don't simply say you agree with it simply because you're on talking to us. <laughs> other side of the what do you think about a pardon, an apology and a national memorial? Do you think these are good things individually or in, in, in total? What's your, what's your view? I think I think memorials are good. Pardons, for me, um, flare up a, a different set of arguments I have about pardons. And, and it's about kind of ideas of mercy, forgiveness, and how they connect to the idea of pardon. And one of my problems with that, and it's a problem which I have about this to some extent, but also about the pardons that were distributed in general to um, to the homosexual offence, people have been convicted of that, and indeed to, um, to Turing himself, is that pardon presupposes a measure of guilt. And pardons don't say you're not guilty. In the classic sense, it's, it's the exercise of mercy. It commutes the guilty person's sentence or, or their level of guilt. And I suppose it, it comes down to whether you see the arguments of mercy and the arguments of justice as being basically a species of the same thing, or <laughs> do you see them as radically different kind of things? And, and you see this with Turing. When Alan Turing was initially, the first reaction to, to him, I think Gordon Brown initially apologised for the treatment of Alan Turing, who was chemically castrated by the British state, despite having served uh, nobly in the, albeit not in the, the perhaps the armed sense of World War II, but famously as a codebreaker, as many people will, will know, because he was gay. And that sort of pardon uh, or apology followed by a royal pardon, if you read what the Queen proclaims, you know, it was very much that royal um, prerogative of mercy. And I do think, is this really an argument about mercy or is this an argument about justice? And that would be where I would come in on that. That's quite interesting because we've had contact from a number of people in England talking about pardons and how they get pardons for people in England. And there was uh, some years ago an attempt to get a pardon from the English Parliament from a certain people that were convicted of, of witchcraft. And the pardon was removed because a pardon had to come from the Queen. And you couldn't ask Parliament to do it, whereas here we can ask our Parliament to pardon. And I understand what you say is that the idea of the pardon requiring mercy. Interestingly enough here, the language which has been used in both of the pardons that have been proposed, the the homosexual offences, inverted commas, and um, for the minors, both of them make the point that these people were not guilty of an offence. So I think it's quite interesting that the language that's being used for the pardon actually does emphasise that we with our modern eye look at them and see that they aren't aren't doing that. And I think that is, in a legalistic sense, different from the prerogative of mercy which the Queen would have to give. So I think our, our Parliament has looked at it in a different way. Probably because I'm a lawyer, I think, well, if I can't get a conviction overturned, the next best thing I can get 
because I would love to try and get all these convictions <laughs> overturned. Um, um, that would the legal aid board would be up for that. We've got a bunch of that's that's a career there. Yeah. We have actually, some people have actually, um, those speaking negatively have said, what a waste of legal aid. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this, see if you think I'm getting paid legal aid for this, then, then I've got a bridge up to sell you, you know? Yeah, do you have Another, to put the date, date of birth 1569 in the, yes. the applicant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> One other thing that we've had as a criticism is, in fact, this came from a, from a solicitor in Scotland, said if we if we were going to be looking for an apology and a pardon for for the witches then he had he had some issues with the romans that they had come and attacked our country and would we be seeking um redress from them what what would you think about that about this <laughs> idea that you know if you get apologies for one group you need to get apologies from everybody that's done done scotland wrong in some way the idea of an infinite regress. So I suppose I go back to the point that you know, if you're going to avow the history of your country and the 16th century is not that long ago, then you have to take the good and the bad at the same time. I mean, you can maybe even sharpen up the argument still further. I mean, clear, you'll know better than any of us that the actual innocence is not a ground of appeal. As you said at the outset, it's a miscarriage of justice. And so, you know, my client's innocent, laughter on the bench, you know, I mean, like, don't care. It's not really the point. And therefore, you could say, you know, people have argued this over the years that the grounds of appeal against conviction should be changed to allow the court, at least in some cases, to say, actually, this woman, this guy didn't do it. And so many people would argue that even the current grounds of appeal are actually inadequate because they still leave a haze over people potentially that they were factually guilty in the language of the, the, the kind of scholarship around this, but acquitted on a technicality, to use this, a tabloid type of phrase. So I think, you, I think you're, you're right, actually, that if you look at the way the Scottish Parliament has legislated about this, it's not been legislating in the way which is characteristic of how you might think of mercy. Mercy, if you think about it, is often erratic, personal. You can't have a right to mercy. That doesn't really make any sense. I think I have a right to mercy, even in, as was in, even in the Christian theological sense, that's the thing you don't have the right to. You deserve to be punished, but you get the mercy anyway. And so I suppose the way the Scottish Parliament's legislated for this is to recognise like the witches um, or the supposed witches, that we're dealing with a class of people who, by dint of falling under suspicion and finding themselves persecuted, experienced injustice. I just think that there's, for me, and it's probably not a, it's probably a philosophical point enough, you know, abstract enough for me to step away from it. But I think we sometimes get confused about the difference between justice and mercy. And, and I think there are differences between these things because you throw yourself on the mercy of others, whereas you demand justice. And justice does seem to have more of that kind of affirmative demanding assertive quality. And as you can see, I, I think in terms of the existing structures of what Parliament's done, pardon for a class of people is probably the way to go. And I think very often it feels like, well, strong echoes of lots of discussions. I mean, you might think echoes about reparations, arguments of what we owe the rest of the world for colonial adventures Britain went on down the centuries, losses and things like that. There's, I think culturally, if you're going to look at this through the lens of the culture wars, <laughs> that's where some of those arguments are coming from. I just want everyone to know that when we're finished the Witches of Scotland campaign, we're not moving on to what may or may not have happened with the, the Italians. <laughs> Justice for Calgacus, that kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for joining us again for the Witches of Scotland podcast. As ever, please share. If you enjoyed today, you might want to think giving us a five-star rating because then that means that it'll bump up the charts and more people will know about us. 
You can get the podcast anywhere that does podcasts. And if you please can remember to tell people that maybe don't follow on social media about the campaign too, because we've still got another few weeks left of the petition with Scottish Parliament. And as we keep saying, the more people that sign that, the more of a case we have that this is something that people really want to see happen. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.